0: Welcome to Your Career Podcast. If you're looking for inspiration in your career or job search, you're at the right place. I'm Jane Jackson, your career management coach and author of Navigating Career Crossroads. For more career advice and support, go to JaneJacksonCoach.com and find all you need to create the career of your dreams. Welcome to Jane Jackson Careers, a podcast to inspire you to take your career to the next level. In this podcast, I chat with amazing professionals who are leaders in their field and find out what's made them a success. Many of them have successfully made changes in their careers. They may have changed industry, changed job function, made big city or country moves, or taken the huge leap into entrepreneurship. I also share practical and actionable career tips for those who want to explore what to do next in their career and aren't sure about what steps to take to get moving. Subscribe to this podcast for regular updates or visit me at janejacksoncoach.com.
1: This is Colin Gray from thepodcasthost.com and you're listening to Jane Jackson Careers.
0: Welcome back to my careers podcast. Today, I'm lucky to have Brian Quirk, Executive Coach and Director of PHR Consulting with me. Brian's business career spans 45 years, much of it spent in banking and finance, where he held a number of leadership positions in both Support, Head of Human Resources, and In The Line, Head of Retail Branch Banking. Since departing the banking industry, he has moved through a number of senior roles in professional services including outplacement, recruitment, and for the last 10 years as an owner of PHR Consulting, where he works as a leadership and career coach. He's far from convinced that leadership has improved much, if at all, during his time in the commercial world, and believes that this is having a detrimental impact of the quality of the lives many people live. He believes that through improving the skills of leaders, you create a trickle-down effect that not only engages employees, but ultimately, creates better lives. And so, let's say a big welcome to Brian. (laughs)
1: Thank you, Jay.
0: Well, it's very nice to have you on the show today, Brian. My pleasure. And so, now, now, as you know, this, this podcast is all about careers and career progression. So, I'd like to find out how you made all of the multiple transitions that you've made in your career. So, how about to kick it off, we'll start off with what sort of career did you dream of as a little boy?
1: Well, I think if we go back to when I was a little boy and it was mid-60s, I don't think in those days there was such a thing as a dream, to be honest. I think we, at that point, it was all about getting a role. After you left school, you went and worked and you got a job that was as secure as possible in as prestigious an industry as you possibly could so in terms of sitting there there was no career guidance from schools either so there was nothing there to suggest what you should do about what you what your interest might be so ultimately if you were lucky enough as i was to to matriculate and and get a scholarship to university you went off and you did something that you thought might be interesting in my case that was economics because that was something at school that i found engaging with a view to nothing at all apart from simply doing that degree so at 17 I left the country, came to the city, and had to work out how to transition from being at home and at school to getting through living in Sydney by yourself and going to university. So it was really a it's more, and I still think there's a lot of accidents. I think it's just, that seemed like a good idea at the time, but at 17, what could I possibly know about what I might want to do when I was 40? Yeah. So it was an accident.
0: Yeah, I suppose. I mean, it's so true because most most teenagers don't really know what they want. But I think nowadays they do dream, probably because of social media and there's so much on television and people can see what what different careers there are. But as you say, back in the day, back in the 1960s, (laughs) it was a matter of you go to school or you go to university after school and then you get a job, you get a proper job. And then there were certain jobs that you could choose, and they were probably like a doctor, a lawyer, a dentist, a businessman, um, just a whole, whole myriad of careers, but they were like the traditional careers. So there was no dreaming, no hoping that, you know, you wanted to be an astronaut or... I think
1: for very few people there was, but the reality of it is that if you came through with parents who'd come through quite tough times in wars and depression that was all about get a secure job mm-hmm. so that was the driver and it wasn't about you you didn't really have as much choice i think then as you do today or, or people at 17 or 18 have today you mm-hmm. was okay off you go you have to make it you have to survive all by yourself your parents aren't going to support you and it's about get a secure job work in the post office the government a bank probably the pick of the jobs because mm-hmm. you had a, at that stage you had security for life you had an expectation that you would join a bank at 17 or 18, and you would still be there at 60.
0: Yeah, actually, it's interesting that you say the security for life thing because, in, in well, back in the day when I was growing up as well, because we're both baby boomers, um, it was. The, th- the the main thought was that you, you start working somewhere. And if you do a really good job, they'll tap you on the shoulder and give you a promotion, give you a bit more money. Later on, maybe you get another promotion and you climb the career ladder. And then hopefully you get enough tenure and you end up getting that watch for long service. And then you get your long service leave and you retire. And that that I know that's what I had in my mind when I was growing up. Perhaps that was a little bit like what you thought as well when you first started working?
1: Yeah, look, I think very similar. I think the whole piece about working was you worked to retire, oh. um, which is, and, and the people who were at the retirement age in banking when I joined had a very clear picture of what it looked like. The whole world would, was built around that retirement piece. Um, so you did, and if you were any good, you expected that you would get promotions and you would get more money and you would get more status, and so it went on. But you also expected to be in the same entity, Um, when you were 60 as you were when you were 17 and whether that's working for a a public sector thing like sydney water or one of the electricity uh as in those days utilities that was what you did it wasn't about and, and certainly loyalty was valued enormously so if you'd worked in a place for 20 years then you were seen to be a loyal person today if you work in a place for 20 years you seem to be you know what would be the word? Um, a bit stuck. <laughs> and, yes, that's and, right. and and so it's it's completely it's completely contrary to what it was. So you went in, you did your stuff, you. But it was a different world, a completely different world. So do you point about someone at seventeen or eighteen? Um, yeah, they dream. I think they dream today, but the dreams are very um, fluid and volatile because it's a shifting world. But for anybody at seventeen or eighteen to think that they can work out what it looks like that will satisfy them through the next 50 years of work or 60 years of work. I think one of the things when we're working with younger people is to have them understand that they are entirely normal by not understanding where they're going or what they're doing. <clears throat> with that vision, they can go, okay, I can now, I, I'm not odd. All my friends seem to have direction and, and, and clarity, which they don't, but they appear to. So once people realise that at 17 or 18 you are likely to change direction many times, hopefully, in your career, then it's not so urgent that you make the right decision. So when you finish high school, and you you will pick a degree to do in most cases. But it's not a it's lot for life. It's just that's what you're doing at that time. And as you get older and more experienced and more exposed to the commercial world, you start to work out, OK, there's other things that I'm good at doing that I enjoy and there's things I thought I'd enjoy that I don't. So lots of people go into the law thinking this will be a wonderfully high paid career and they go into the law and then they suddenly get to the reality of the law and the work that they have to do. And it's not it's not necessarily what they want to do. So the fact that I've had a few career changes at my age is is relatively minor compared to people today.
0: Yeah, I think it's so hard when say some people now who might be facing redundancies because they've been with the company for a certain number of years and then all of a sudden there's a change and it was out of their control and they think oh dear now I have to reinvent myself and it's so difficult if you've got that feeling that oh I I thought I'd be in this one company forever it just doesn't happen anymore and we tend to think more of portfolio careers now where you sort of you work for three or four years and then you think okay well I've I've got some wins on the board now, what next? What's the next challenge? And it's either going to be another challenge, perhaps in a different area within the same company, or changing company, or even changing industry. And and I think probably the mentality nowadays is more towards, you know, how do I embrace change rather than how do I resist change? But to that end, for you, you've had quite a number of changes in your career. And so when you went to uni and you graduated, how what did you start off doing?
1: Well, I was looking down the barrel of going to um, into national service for two years as a 20-year-old. So the, the the logic about my career choice was I left full-time uni because I missed a subject, which means that the deferment of um, conscription was, was voided. So I was going to most likely go in. So you picked a... G- you picked a place to work that had certainty for when you came out of the army. So banks were one of the best places to be if you were going to go into the army for two years because you had certainty about being re-employed. And if you were making less money than you would have in the bank, the bank made up the difference. So it had nothing to do with passion and career and choices. It had to do with expediency. Um, and you knew that at that stage, well, there's a job for me. I don't have to worry. I'll come back out and... Um, I'll, I'll have a job and then I'll work out what I do after that so it's not it wasn't about choices that you when you think about what should I be doing that I love to do it was you know, let's let's be pragmatic here because you had to survive you had to pay for a flat and pay for all the bits that go with it so purely pragmatic in those days for almost everybody I knew so so you joined a bank I joined a bank as a um, junior and yeah. a teller Uh
0: huh. and how did that progress
1: well, I quite enjoyed that because there were people there, and there was money, and there was lots of stuff to do and and so, I worked probably a couple of a year or so before I went into the army i worked then came out of the army and i 'd been fortunate enough to be in the psychology Corps within the Army, which then lent me towards the Human resources Department when I came out, so they snapped me up and put me in there. And then I had a variety of jobs running the internal recruitment center and then on to other things. So over that period of I think I was in the bank for 28 years, I had 17 different jobs, each of them a bit bigger than the one before, um, which is not probably likely to happen much today. Um, so because it wasn't an order a a natural choice didn't mean it wasn't good fun and it wasn't enjoyable and it wasn't successful it just more good luck than good management so very little to do with that the the human resources piece I studied psychology at university so therefore that kind of led itself to to that but I was fortunate enough to get into line jobs and other things as well so um, and to be in a bank that went through enormous change under Nick Whitlam and John O'Neill and others so yeah, you know, I, I look back on that and think that was, you know, there were, it was tough work towards the end. But I think it was just, if it was really bad, I would have left. Mm. So it wasn't really bad. And mm. I enjoyed it. So mm. I, I look back with no regrets on that. And if you ask me what else would I have done, probably there's nothing I can think of that I might have gone and done.
0: Mm-hmm. So sure. I have no
1: aspiration to be a carpenter or something or whatever. So I think I think it's about the choices get made. You sometimes are in control of some of that but i think it's about making the most of the choices that you make and if it's really if it's really not a good fit you'll work that out pretty quickly
0: mm-hmm. well i think you were very fortunate to to go into banking and then specialize in the hr area and then have a long career but after 28 years that must have been a bit of a shock so what what facilitated the change okay. out of banking yeah
1: um Not a shock in the sense that the bank, which was the state bank of New South Wales, was on the sale block for some time. The government wanted to get rid of it. So we knew that for four or five years prior to it finally being sold. And it was the piece about getting the bank prepared to to do that. But once, once the sale process had been through, you knew that as part of the senior management team, you weren't going to have a job for very long. That's just a natural part of it because they, the new owners wanted to take it in a different direction and they needed to get rid of some of the older thinking and more traditional thinking to do that. Fortunately for me, that meant that I was retrenched. Um, was that difficult? Yeah, it is difficult when you leave a place where you've got status and you've got all the bits that go with that and you're out there in a world that you have no idea what to do with. You haven't got a resume, you haven't got anything. Um, and you've, you've got not a clue, let me tell you, not a clue about where to apply, and this was a time before you had the internet, so you had to look for advertised positions in the Herald on a Saturday, and you had to write a letter, and they'd write you a letter back telling you that it hadn't quite worked out.
0: Oh my God, snail mail! I'd forgotten so, that there was snail mail besides emails. So, so, so
1: all of that. So when I left banking, it was at the time when mobile phones had just started coming in, and the internet and and, and email had just begun. So 1996, I think it was. Um, so very different searching piece. The good part of it was that I took a year and I explored lots of different things, and I ended up taking a role at a very, very minor level with a career coaching organization, a global company. And and I do this with, with a lot of my clients, is sometimes you need to do that to recreate. And after a while of working at a pretty low level with them, they started to realize I could probably do other things. And so they gave me the opportunity to go up to work in Malaysia on a factory closure for several months. So I went up and ran that for them. And then I came back to Sydney and started running their Parramatta office. And ultimately, that's lasted a couple of years. So happenstance, but I think, you know, part of that is um, I did not do then what what I coach my clients to do today. And that is have clarity about what your job, what your value proposition is. And to your point earlier, I think very very few people see their career as an income producing asset it is the single biggest source of income that they will ever have but yet people get caught short when they're retrenched. they haven't thought about anything they haven't got a resume they don't know what to do they don't spend proactive time throughout the year Looking at where they're at, adding skills, adding achievement statements, adding stuff to their value proposition. So, typically, when people get caught, and I'm sure you see it when you're dealing with people who have been retrenched, they haven't got the vaguest clue. Their networks are poor, their documentation's poor, their value proposition's poor, they don't know what they want, and they're suddenly confronted with no income and an urgency.
0: Mm. And I guess that that I mean it must really ring true for you when you were reinventing yourself in a way after being within a bank for so many years and then going into a different industry. Well, you were still it was still HR, yeah, really. However, it was a different company. It was an outplacement company, not a bank. Um, it would have had a different culture. You were doing all sorts of different things as well, and then going over to Malaysia, where you were experiencing a different culture. So it was all quite new. Quite new, quite different. Must have been quite interesting and exciting
1: too. Interesting, yes, and, and exciting. I mean, I think everybody has moments where they have a panic attack when when at two in the morning when you're trying to work out whether this is going to work or whether we'll run out of money before it works. Um, I, I I just think I was fortunate enough to Guts it through. To be honest, I, I, things things come up. If you if you work at it, and you're prepared to at least put yourself in a position where people see what you've got to offer. See, it was scary. A, a year of doing not much at all was fun, expensive. Mm.
0: But so that year, that that year in between, was that because it was challenging to find a new role, or did you deliberately decide to take a year sabbatical and reassess your life? A bit
1: of both. Um, it 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 was. I could afford to take the time out to investigate other things and to to be around like-minded people because I wasn't the only one who left the bank at that time. Um, There were roles around, but I think I was ill-prepared to to pitch for them. So I I certainly interviewed for some HR director roles, but I had no clue about interviewing. Mm. I thought that I knew what interviews were like until I went to my first interview and I realised that I was on the (laughs) wrong side of the table um, because I'd interviewed hundreds of people, but I just didn't think about what I was supposed to do when I was on the other Mm -hmm. side and I got badly caught in terms of some of the basic questions. So that's quite sobering. Yes that's the way it is
0: yeah actually it's quite interesting because whenever I coach um, professionals who've been HR and I say to them, the beginning now coming from an HR background I would assume that you've got a very strong resume and they go well actually no i've never had to have a resume or whatever it might be and yeah usually it's the HR people that we make do the most work on um, because really being on the other side of the interview table completely different isn't it you can't assume yes. that they know what they're going to say or whether they've got responses to behavioral uh, interview questions and all sorts of things so there's a lot of prep to do and so but back to you brian with your so with your career you transitioned into career coaching and then you took on more leadership roles within that company
1: yeah the initial one with dbm was running the north the um, Parramatta, western sydney operation which meant having an office in Parramatta and, and selling delivering doing all the bits that go with running that because they're fairly small staff and and again at, large expectations from a, an owner um, that lasted for two years and and for whatever reasons it, I decided it was time for me to leave mm-hmm. um, and then I, I again t- to the point about career choices I was approached by somebody to be the state manager of one of the big recruitment companies and I left the I took that role more to get away from the place I was working in than because it was the best role for me. In hindsight it was probably not the best role at so all. So
0: running away from the culture
1: okay. Yeah, no, we're um, running away from management not so much the culture was good, the culture was good but the management was, was you know you, your management is the person you're reporting to and a couple around them and if that doesn't work it doesn't work and so you, there's a point at which you think this is going nowhere, I need to leave um, so then went for two years and ran the New South Wales and Canberra operations for Kelly Services and again um, I ran away from that because I was approached by the DBM to come back and run North Sydney but I had to get out of the recruitment business because I was not running um, happily with the management there so maybe it's me.
0: Well there's a trend there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, but it was it was at that stage where I had a managing director that I simply could not work with um, and then I was approached by, as I say, by DBM to come back and run North Sydney which was quite attractive because it was a good company and it was good people and it, had, it, it was a good business. Um, but then there came a point where, um, again, the same trend occurred, and I didn't get along so well <laughs> with the managing director.
0: Oh, well, What's this tell there's, you? A, there's a definite trend here, Brian. I think it sounds like you actually. Yeah, it probably is. <laughs> but it, but you know what? Very interesting because now you run your own business, PHR consulting, and people who go into entrepreneurship for their own businesses usually don't fit in. Mm in mm. your typical corporate environment because they are a bit bolshy or they are a bit more creative or there are different ways that they prefer to do things and they need that autonomy. And then if you've got that entrepreneurial bent about you as well and you're a bit of nouse when it comes to yes. business yeah. then setting up your own business is a good one. So now PHR consulting and here I am sitting office overlooking the beautiful sydney harbour and the sun streaming through the window it's not a bad place to be is it
1: no yeah. Look, the hourly rate's not always as good as it might be but it's not too bad to your point though just touching on the autonomy bit autonomy is one of my career drivers and i didn't realize that until i started doing the kind of work that i do with career coaching and realized that i need freedom i need clarity about expectations and i need the freedom and in every case uh, my autonomy was being uh, constrained and that's why I left so you know, I, I'm happy to do the stuff but don't come and ask me questions mm-hmm. about it every five minutes mm-hmm. so so when that happened and we part of the reason that that happened was we were looking to take the DBM model to a coaching and a career coaching suite the managing director at the time did not agree with that at all and five of us left on you know one day mm-hmm. um, Graham, Chris and I sat down and decided that if we thought to take it to a coaching model was a good idea, then why wouldn't we do it ourselves? Mm -hmm. So scary as all hell, but nobody blinked. And so we rented the premises and set them up and had no customers. And we had contacts, but no customers. And so it was scary, um, but it was also the autonomy piece was, was quite powerful. And there's a point at which you back yourself. If you think you've got capability to do something, then you better convince somebody else you do, whether you have it or not, doesn't matter. And so we really did that. And we started initially with um, a lot of outgoing monies. Um, We started to do pro bono targeted coaching for people that we knew. So typically we would target the HR director and we would offer him or her our services for nothing for one of their people so they could test what we did. And the idea was that if you like what we do, then perhaps you can talk to us commercially. Um, Otherwise, we're just sitting
0: around drinking red wine, and that was really not been, that was expensive. <laughs> Sounds pretty good to me. But then that way, <coughs> by doing the pro bono work initially, when it comes to consulting, you were developing relationships.
1: Absolutely. So
0: that's the key, isn't and skill it? developing relationships, developing your skill, and then if you were doing well, those people for whom you were providing the pro bono coaching would be recommending you to yes. others. And is that how the business built?
1: Absolutely. And what we what we found were people were. In some cases, not wanting to go to one of the very big providers for the work that they wanted to do. And so they would talk to their network and their network would say, well, try these guys. They've done some work for us. We're pretty impressed. So go and talk. And We probably got our, our biggest opportunities at the GFC when there were places that actually just closed up and they engaged us to come in and clean it. You know, 60, 70 people do the whole piece. Um, so it did work from word of mouth. We've not done a cold call in 10 years. Um, and it all comes from somebody saying, you know, we and we do tend to over service, but people people respect and and remember when you help them when they were in bother. And so from our point of view, that's exactly what happened. People started to refer other people to us, and they also started to use us within their own businesses. So, it was HR directors, COOs, and managing directors were pretty much the target. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of pro bono work we still do with um, with people. If there's somebody that's a, that is out of out of work and struggling, we'll often get a call saying, "Would you mind?" And we've always said we would do that. And that's, you know, I think that's part of why it's worked so well because mm-hmm. people do remember when you. It's something you didn't need to do.
0: Yeah. I think it's so important to have that community aspect to it as well, to be giving back as well as, you know, running a successful business. And so the services that you offer are executive coaching, leadership coaching and career coaching, career transition coaching, assisting Small, medium, large organizations through organizational change?
1: Well, okay, typically, just touch on the career coaching piece. The career coaching is where somebody in their own right, as we call a retail customer, will approach us and say, can I come and talk with you? And we will we will price those things differently because people oftentimes haven't got the capacity to pay. So career coaching is fundamentally almost all about helping someone who doesn't have a job to work out how they get a job that, that works for them. Sometimes it's people who are in jobs that want to move and they'll come and engage us privately to to help them to prepare themselves to do that. The other side, the leadership coaching or whatever one wants to call it, is is working with people who actually have jobs. So they're emerging managers right through to CEOs who... In some cases, need somebody that isn't a part of their current world to, to sit and talk with, to bounce ideas off. So I'm sure the sounding board approach to things, helping them to be accountable for some of the decisions they, they know they need to make but haven't made. Um, so they're fundamentally, in terms of helping through change, yes, there's a degree of that, It's but it's, it's more a one-on-one type thing. But if somebody's going to downsize a department, we'll go in, we'll do the planning and we'll do all the work around that, help them.
0: Mm. And that's a really, really valuable skill set to be able to assist other organizations to go through because there's so much change that happens constantly and so with your business now and obviously it's been going for 10 years so it's been running successfully for anyone thinking of going into their own business to run their own business what would be your top three tips for success
1: well, the first one would be to have plenty of money behind you so that you, you're not panicking about money. So in terms of if you're going to rent premises and do some things, it's going to cost money. So the first piece is if you're really short of cash and you can't get access to cash, then I think I'd think about it twice. Um, that's, that's, the, that's the first thing. second thing, if it's about coaching, then I would... I think you've got to have a breadth and depth of experience in the commercial world and in life generally to be any use as a coach. So I think part of that is is be somebody who's actually been through redundancies, who's been through personal dramas, who's seen restructuring, who's done all the things. And it doesn't mean you know everything. It just means that you've probably seen many of the things that people are talking about. So I think that's a part of it. I think the third part would be to get a really good mentor. I mean, get somebody who, get somebody who who is a wise head who, who can who is prepared to sit and you know bounce things almost like your mentor or your coach, but more a mentor than the coach, but somebody who understands how business works, understands the commercial world, has been around enough to understand why you know, your anxieties are actually pretty normal and they can be managed. So probably those three things. Um, I think if we hadn't had the the money to run the first probably year of the business, we wouldn't be talking in this office today. Um, but I I don't think you can do you can do career coaching to a degree if you've got reasonable skills around career work, but in terms of of helping a CEO to run a business and to make the decisions, I think you've, you you need probably best if you run your own business, you've worked in a business, you've had profit and loss experience, um, all of that stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think with the the wealth of experience that you've had through banking, and then working in large global organizations, um, the services that you offer at PHR are going to be very valuable for any other industry leaders who may be going through any sort of change.
1: I think so, I think it's very, these days it's an isolated place when you're, as you would know, in terms of running your own business or as a managing director of a business, you can't always share all your problems with everybody else in the business and you can't necessarily take them home to your partner and they've got a little interest often about hearing your woes and I think that's where being able to, to ring up and say, can I come and have a session and we'll move on to talk about certain things, I think that's very important for people. Yeah.
0: Sometimes it's very lonely at the top and then it's even lonelier at the top if you're going through massive change and no one to talk to. Well,
1: you can't share some of that with people as well. So sometimes you've got to balance the whole piece about, I know what's going to happen, but I've got to pretend I don't. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is very lonely and it is stressful. Just because someone's a CEO doesn't mean they don't have their own anxieties and stresses and their own lives and their own problems. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, people will go to counsellors for certain things and they'll go to coaches for other things. And I think that's a very important part of the process.
0: Mm -hmm. And so if someone wanted to work... With you, Brian, or with one of of your your, um, colleagues here at PHR Consulting, where would they reach you?
1: I think the easiest thing is to just look up www.phrconsulting.com.au and they will get our bios, they will get our backgrounds, they'll get our uh, connections, our email addresses and mobile phone numbers. I think the piece about that is if somebody does feel that they could use um, some coaching, it's really for us, it's about ring us up and have a chat. If you think it could work, and we can come to a, to a, an arrangement about what it is you want to coach on, if it's outside our scope, we just simply say no. It's not what we do. You need to see somebody else. But I think I think it's really about if you're going to create a relationship between a coach and a coaching client. The chemistry has to be really good you have to both parties have to feel that this is going to work so i think you only do that by probably coming by and having a cup of coffee and having a chat which i'm very happy to do and that's again coming back to how we started the business that's how we started the business
0: mm. and so if anyone wants to have a cup of coffee with brian or, um, or, or check out any of the other, other directors within the business, phrconsulting.com.au is the place to, to find out. So that's been a really interesting career journey, Brian. Thank, Thank you, you so much for coming on the show today. And it's been a pleasure having a chat with you.
1: Thank you, Jane. It's been a
0: pleasure. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Jane Jackson Careers. Sign up to receive regular career advice at janejacksoncoach.com. joining me today for affordable career help please check out my career success program i provide a unique blend of online and live career coaching to help you take control of every aspect of your career or career change if you aren't aware where you want to be in your career let's talk check it out at thecareersacademy.online the links are in my show notes